Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy, and this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode, The Socialite Equestrian, Joan Robinson Hill. I am rolling solo today, but Chris made some fantastic dishes that I will tell you all about during the wine recess. Uh, to pair with those dishes, we are drinking. Um, we were sipping on OG Cellars Tempranillo. Um, I can't wait to tell you more about this wine and Chris's creations during that wine recess. Uh, we have a few Patreon members to welcome. A uh, big shout out to Jody Gillespie. Olivia James and Becky Samuel, thank you. Thank you, ladies, so much for your support. We want to just thank all of our Patreon members um, for just supporting us each and every month. We appreciate it so very much. All right, friends, um, let's jump into this week's case. So it's time to sip some wine and talk some crime. All right, so this week's case comes out of Houston, Texas. I am going to give you three facts about Houston during the area during the era in which our case takes place. Number one, in 1940, there were 500,000 people living in Houston. By 1960, it had grown to 1.25 million. Now in 2023, there are currently 2.3 million people living in the city of Houston. I don't know if that's accurate. I thought it was more. But that was the only, that was like the biggest number I found. So number two, in 1960, Houston International Airport was deemed inadequate to support the city. So they built Houston Intercontinental Airport, which is now known as George Bush Intercontinental Airport. Number three, in 1962, NASA opened the Manned Spacecraft Center, which is now known as the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center. Joan Robinson Hill was a 38-year-old mother wife, equestrian champion, and Houston royalty. On March 18, 1969, Joan had fallen unexpectedly ill and was hospitalized for 24 hours when she began vomiting blood and convulsing. By the next morning, Joan Robinson Hill had died in her hospital bed of what doctors believed to be cardiac arrest and kidney failure from an infection. What really happened to Joan Robinson Hill? Okay, friends, this was actually a very famous national case um, about a beautiful, young, healthy socialite that had fallen mysteriously ill and passed away suddenly. Joan Robinson Hill was the only child um, of a wealthy Texas oil man named Ash Robinson. Ash was married to a woman named Rhea, R-H-E-A Robinson, whom he met in New Orleans while studying at Tulane University. Now, the couple was not able to have um, children. Rhea could not get pregnant. Uh, she would later say that Ash had always wanted to become a father, and she felt a certain level of inadequacy for not being able to give her husband a child. Since by this time, the couple had moved to Houston from New Orleans, um, Ash had encouraged his wife to consider adoption. So she readily agreed to the idea, and in March 1931, Rhea went to visit the Edna Gladney home in Fort Worth. Now, if you aren't familiar with the Edna Gladney home, um, it's an adoption agency that has been around for 135 years. There are books and movies made about Edna Gladney, so um, you can look her up and, and learn more about her. Um, but this adoption agency 
was for people with means where they could quickly adopt a child. Um, I wish things moved that fast um, nowadays when it comes to um, adopting kids who, who need good homes. Um, and, and these kids were well taken care of. And it also served as a place where teen um, girls, um, teen unwed girls could go during their pregnancies and feel safe until the child was born. Um, it was also a place for girls from wealthy families who were unwed um, but pregnant to stay until their babies were born. And then they would all be put up for adoption. And then the girl would eventually return to their families. Um, of course, it's evolved over the years and it's ran differently than it was back in 1931, but has always maintained its reputation for helping families and helping children and just being a safe place to go. Uh, Rhea Robinson walks into the Edna, Edna Gladney home and she sees this beautiful baby girl in fact, it was the only girl infant in the entire place. She immediately knew this baby needed to be a part of their family. So Joan Olive was adopted by the Robinson family and immediately became Joan Robinson. Now, it was said that Ash Robinson was absolutely head over heels in love with his daughter, right? What man isn't? And he would give her the world. And he had the means to give her the world. Uh, she traveled with him. He would work as he was rocking her on his lap. Um, his wife once said that when she brought that baby home, um, he, she became Ash's pride and joy. Um, and she joked that she never got to see her daughter again <laughs> because once he got his hands on her, um, they were always together. Now, when Joan became older in her 20s, and she, this is when she finds out she's adopted. So she needs a passport, and which requires a birth certificate. And so they had to tell her the, the truth um, because she, her birth certificate was clearly not going to, uh, you know, have their information on it. So, so they break the news um, to Joan. And after that, she gets kind of interested in finding more out about herself, um, finding more about her birth parents. So she decides she's going to hire a private investigator to track down her birth her birth parents. Um, after some time, the PI, you know, tells her, "Hey, I've got some information about um, your parents." So he tells her. Now this is interesting. He tells her that Ash Robinson is indeed her father, but her mother Rhea is not blood related. So the PI tells her that her father impregnated, got another woman pregnant, and most likely paid her to give the child up for adoption, hence sending his wife Rhea to the Edney Gladney home to pick out the waiting baby girl. Now, clearly, Joan is shocked by this news. She actually gets really upset and tells the PI, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. She rips up the papers, says, I don't care. These people have raised me. My mom is my mom. My dad is my dad. None of this really matters. But how crazy is that if it's true? Right? Um, she never says anything to her father about what she found out. She was the apple of his eye and she wanted to keep it that way. 
Now, by the time Joan was five years old, she was winning equestrian events competing against kids three times her age. She became she became a famous female equestrian in Houston. She traveled all over the world competing in events. She bought horses. She raised them. She trained them. And because of her father's money, she was able to purchase a farm in her early 30s for her, her, her horses. Um, and really, she wanted to start a career in equestrian talent. She wanted other families who have children who are really into horses and, and want to learn Um the craft and, and to be able to basically everything Joan's been able to do to win these competitions over the years. She wanted to give that back um, to, to others um, and their families. And at first things were going great with the farm, but then um, we're going to kind of see how it um, dwindles off because sadly by the time of her death at 38, the farm was just about to be sold. Her life had started to become consumed by her troubled marriage and Joan was really just trying to figure out how to keep it all together. Joan Robinson met John Hill at a party um, held by one of Joan's friends. Uh, that friend would later say that they were complete opposites um, and that she wasn't even sure how they ended up together. They had very little interest um, in the same things. They came from totally two different worlds. Joan came from a life of privilege, and John came um, a life on the other side of the tracks from River Oaks. Now, River Oaks is a very, very wealthy area of Houston. Um, you will still see plantation-style mansions still standing today. Um, this is a lot of these homes. Some of these homes are very, very old oil money. Um, and this was a place where John would drive by and only wish um, about about living one day. Um, but they did have one thing in common. Joan loved being rich and she loved the good life. And John loved the idea of being rich and having the good life. So the two decide they're going to marry. Now, this will be Joan's third marriage um, as she was married and divorced twice by the time she was 20 years old. Now, her father disliked both of, the, both of her husbands in the first two marriages, but he felt John was different. He kind of welcomed him more with open arms when he realized John was going to medical school to become a plastic surgeon. So when he and Joan married, he was in his first year of residency. Um, now, Chris isn't here to speak to this, but we talk about this um, with him being at the hospital and, and doctors and when, they, when they're there doing their residency. They're not making very much money, right? They're still learning their craft. They do years of this um, before they actually go off really go off on their own. Um, sometimes they'll start their own practice. Sometimes they'll move to a different hospital. But he is just in his first year of residency. So he's got a few years to go um, before he he really starts to make um, the good money as a plastic surgeon. But Joan is rich. She's rich because her father is rich. But John is not rich. Um, so Ash Robinson tells his daughter and son-in-law that they can move into the mansion, move into his mansion in the upscale River Oaks until they can afford a home of their own. So you have this couple, this young couple, um, getting married, and he is in residency trying to finish medical school. 
And then you have the um, the the rich father who is already established, who can take you know his daughter in. And by the way, he liked having his daughter around. Um, friends said it. He said it. Uh, he liked having his daughter there. And so I, a lot of people believe that was his way to kind of keep her close um, and, and telling them that they can move in. So they do. They move in to Ash Robinson's home, um, and then they get pregnant. She is pregnant with a, a baby boy not long after um, the marriage. So John was said to be a distant, a distant father um, consumed by his work, and the child was spoiled by his grandfather, Ash Robinson. Um, he was going to give that boy anything he wanted, um, just like he had given his daughter and he wanted to make sure that his grandson, um, had what he needed, lived a good life. And this really the same went for his daughter. Now the day comes when Joan and John decide they need to move out of her parents' home and get a home of their own. So John was, um, now a partner in a plastic surgery um, center. It was actually owned by one other doctor. Um, and so they decide that they're going to just get it, get a, you know, a small place of their own. And they do. So that this was exciting. Ash Robinson understood. I mean, his daughter went to him and said, listen, dad, we need to have a life of our own. Um, and he even agreed to, um, you know, help the couple. And so, what they did was um, they moved just for a bit, and then they realized, um, you know, I want my daughter closer to me. So maybe since he's now doing well, um, he's lived here for a few years, he's now working in a practice, um, he offers to actually help the couple buy a home just down the street for him in the River Oaks neighborhood. Now, once the couple had purchased this home, Ash Robinson would come over and have coffee with his daughter every single morning to see her and his grandson. It's believed she kept this from her husband since she felt some sort of jealousy from John about the relationship the child had with his grandfather. And now it's time for a wine recess. Okay, so we thought it would be fun to make some football fair, if you will, as we cheered on our cowboys um, and by the time you listen to this, yes, yes, we um, did not win <laughs> the football game, but we are still really proud of our Cowboys and um, we ate some good food. Maybe next year, guys. All right. So um, this is just some dishes that uh, Chris felt like people could just make, you know, if they're watching football or just, you know, a sporting event. So I... We'll post pictures of this. Um, actually, I already did in our groups. Um, and these recipes will be up on Patreon this week. So we've got Nashville hot chicken skewers. By the way, all this was so good. Dry rub chicken wings. Granny Smith apple crisps for dessert. Bacon wrapped mini sweet peppers with Mexican street corn. Okay, y'all. The Mexican street corn that you eat in the cup with the cheese and the sour cream and the... Hot sauce, yep. He put that in a pepper and then put bacon on it and put them on the grill. <laughs> I couldn't stop eating them. And then he made a cucumber and tomatillo salsa. Um, again, homemade salsa, which he is so great at. Um, but yeah, I, I, I 
all of it was good. Um, you you just look at the pictures and your mouth starts watering. So go check those out. Again, we will put those recipes um, up on Patreon uh, this week. We did pair it. Let me tell you. We decided to drink um, OG Cellars Tempranillo 2019 um, out of the Texas High Plains Crooked Post Vineyards. Now, OG Cellars, their goal is to produce handcrafted small lot 100% Texas wines, um, really using those old world techniques, which I love because I'm a big old world wine fan, um, and, and basically just producing great wine to share with your friends. So uh, check out our friends at OG Cellars. They are in Sunset Texas. You can um, ogcellars.com. I'm telling you, if you are a red drinker, if you have not had Tempranillo or just not sure what Tempranillo is about, I can literally give you five to 10 of them that we have tasted that are amazing. So go um, get yourself some Tempranillo. Check out OG Cellars. Um, and we will get those recipes um, on Patreon this week. All right. So we are going to jump back um, into the case. So John is asked, so now he's working with this doctor in his plastic surgery um, practice. Um, John is asked to leave, though, by this doctor. There was a few malpractice things going on. In fact, his first surgery, the tip of the drill ended up like in the man and he never said anything about it. And it wasn't until he went to the dentist and he had some, there was like a leaking, he was leaking like in the back of his throat and there was some sort of um, like leakage and he couldn't, he kept spitting and they couldn't figure out what it was. And so he, they end up finding out that he has a piece of a drill inside, inside of him. And so once he finds this out, he goes to the surgery center and he's telling the other doctor, you know, I can't believe he did this and didn't say anything. And that was the very first time he performed a surgery um, in this facility. He kept him around. A mistake is a mistake is what I'm going to assume he, um, you know, I think it was like, okay, he's out. He's now out of residency. This is, you know, hopefully he won't ever do it again. Now, it's not the fact that it broke because that doesn't create a malpractice lawsuit. What creates the lawsuit is not telling the patient that it actually broke and is inside of them. Um, so there were several things. And in fact, he just ended up not trusting him. He just decided that he was more of a liability than he was an asset. And he asked him to leave the practice. Um, so he does. And he decides to open his own um plastic surgery practice. And he actually becomes successful. He was making about 160,000 a year. Now that's a lot of money back in the 19 the 1960s. Um when they decided to once well, a lot of money now. But <laughs> it's a lot of money in the 1960s. Uh when they decided um you know that that their lifestyle was changing, right? Um, they they have this home in, in River Oaks. Um now I mentioned that her passion was horses. His passion was music. This guy was obsessed with music. He still performed. He used to be in bands when he was in school. He hired people to to um, basically help him with his singing, help him with his instruments. Um, he had dreamed of having a big music room in his house one day. He, he always told... Um, Joan and and even told Ash Robinson, 
you know, this was this was his dream. He wanted to have a big house um, with a with a, a a a huge music room inside. So he asked Ash Robinson for a ten thousand dollar loan to get it started. And he told him no. Now, remember, they are already in this River Oaks home, okay? And he's asking him for a $10,000 loan to get it started. So even though he was starting to make money, when they first moved into the house, remember, he got he got the loan and was getting helped by Ash Robinson in order to get that house. So Ash thought that this was just a waste of money, like a waste of money, a waste of time. Um, I don't know why you would want a music room. Um, So John becomes obsessed about building this room. Now he's a little frustrated. His father-in-law won't give him the cash. Um, And remember, he lived in this guy's house for years after he married his daughter. Uh, You know, Ash Robinson would say like he never really got up with the with the baby. Um, he he really wasn't around. He was very distant. So I don't know, like that might cause some problems right out of the gate if you're both living with the in laws. Um, you know, maybe maybe there was just some rift in the marriage very early on um, because of just some underlying things that John felt about Ash. But he starts to become obsessed with getting this room built. By the time this music room is finished, it cost $100,000 to complete. <laughs> Chris, I know you're going to listen to this. I know you wish you had a $100,000 music room in our house. <laughs> but this thing was the size of a small hotel ballroom. Um, John spent every minute of his time in that room when he was at home. Joan would eventually say, John doesn't care about me, about his son, about his marriage. All he cares about is that damn music room. Uh, and, and by the way, he had given his wife a, um, I'm going to say allowance at this point, it had gone up to $700 a month when they first were starting out. Um, and really when he, not necessarily when they were first starting out, cause he really had no money, but when he started to make a little money as a plastic surgeon, he, her allowance was a hundred dollars a month. Now her father is rich. And I'm sure Joan had the money and and got whatever she needed because of her father. But I want you to think about somebody who builds a $100,000 music room, yet gives his wife a $700 a month um, allowance. And she would say that was for shopping, for things for the home, for the groceries, for for, for the, the, the caretaker that helped with their son. So you start to see this, um, maybe what's mine is mine and what's yours is you can have a little bit of mine type of thing. Um, So you start to see the difference in how he treats her versus how he treats himself with his own money. Now, the Hills' lives changed um, the summer that they took their son to um, the summer camp. Now, Joan and John Hill arrive at camp and John becomes smitten. I want you to imagine this. He is there with his wife, Joan Hill, and he sees a woman who will eventually, well, who he will eventually leave Joan for. And this woman's name is Ann Kurth. Um, famous law firm with that last name. Uh, yes, there is a relation. 
Um, he asked Anne if it's okay for him to take pictures of her and her kids at the camp. So he is at this camp dropping his son off. I want you to just imagine this. And his wife is there. And he starts following this other lady around with her three boys. So her three boys are there. And she's, you know, they're they're getting ready. They're taking their kids to summer camp. They're, you know, meeting the counselors. Um, and, and he's he's like following this woman around. And she notices, and Kurth notices that man, right? Whoever he is, he tells her, her his his name is John. Now he she sees him standing next to a beautiful blonde woman, and she instantly recognizes her. Remember, Joan, Joan Robinson is like um, a megastar in Houston at this. She is an equestrian champion. She's beautiful. She hangs out at all the ritzy places. I mean, and, and this really is before she gets married to John, even though they do continue that lifestyle. But when she was single and, and going around Houston, I mean, people just knew who she was. And her father was was very wealthy and very outspoken. Um and you just knew who the Robinsons were and and living in the, the, the richest part of Houston. So she immediately um, recognizes her, but that doesn't change anything. Um, he he sees this woman again at the camp and asks her if he can take some pictures of her and her boys. Just like, hey, I'm going to take some pictures. I'll have them developed. Um, so he goes back home. They go back home. And he then finds Anne and calls her. He tells her the pictures are developed and he wants to show them to her. So Anne invites him over. John doesn't leave her home until it was time for him to head into the office the next morning. John told Anne he had been wanting out of his marriage for a very, very long time. Um, so Joan goes out of town for a horse show um, a few days after this incident. Um, now, now, I want to say... Why didn't she question him about him not coming home? Well, he was a plastic surgeon, and he had to told Joan many, many times um, in the evenings that he had to go and that he would, um, and this is before, this is this is also not just during Anne, the, the situation with Anne, but this even went on before, um, before Anne Kurth. He would leave at night tell her that he has to go make the rounds at the hospital, check on his patients, the patients need him. So there was, that was his excuse. And I don't know why, she, I mean, she believed him. She didn't feel like there was any reason to not believe him. Um, so she goes out of, out of town for a horse show. When she comes back, she finds a letter from John saying that he left because things between them aren't good. Um, she's calling his office. They kept telling her he's not there or he's not available or he's in surgery. She can't get a hold of him. Two weeks goes by and she finally hears from her husband. He tells her the marriage is over. I don't want to be married to you anymore. Um, there is a book written um, about this case. Um, I was actually listening to the audiobook. Um, it, the audiobook is 21 hours long. <laughs> there is a... There's a lot of details in this case. Um, I could probably do like four parts, but I'm only going to uh, put you through one of them. So if if you want to dive more and just kind of find out more about 
um, you know, all of the characters in this case and really where they come from and what kind of life they led and really just how this, I mean, this is such an, a crazy case from, from beginning to end. So I highly recommend, um, I highly recommend doing that. But but one thing in the book that is brought up is when he tells his wife this is over, he goes to the house, collects some things, right? So they're in the house together. He's gathering his items. They're, uh, he, she has a very, very, very close friend of hers that lives just next door or about two doors down. And her name is Van. And Van, man, she's a ride or die. She's there for Jim whenever she needs her. Um, she, she, she looks out her window if she hears screaming, if the couple was having a fight. I mean, she was kind of all over it with this. Um, so she sees what, what she would later say is John Hill pulling up, um, and another car pulling up behind him. So he goes in, he's into the house and where he's speaking with Joan and he gets his stuff. He tells her it's over and he gets back in his car and he leaves and there's another car that's following him. So Van goes over. So when Van goes over to her house, she tells her that she just saw right John leave. Um, she's checking on her friend, but she also says there was a blue car that had pulled up um, that looked like it was waiting for something. And then when he drove off, the other car followed so Joan is like, let's go. Like, let's get in the car. Let's follow him. And Van's like, what? And she's like, let's let's do it. Like, who was that? I need to find out who that is. And so they're driving around and they don't see the car. Um, but then they're at a stoplight and they notice that car in a shopping center. So Van's like, yeah, Joan, that's the car I saw. So Joan's like, pull in. So they pull in and they see what we now know is Ann Kurth sitting in the driver's seat and John is sitting in the passenger seat. They pull up and John sees them. He gets out of the car and Van decides to excuse herself and goes into a store because they're in a little shopping center. Um, so Joan and John can, can talk. So Van comes back out and John gets he she hears him say something to her and then he gets back into the other car with Ann Kurth and leaves so Van gets in the car and Joan just looks like she saw a ghost and Van's like what is going on John told his wife that he was actually having an affair or a supposed affair with Ann Kurth's husband and that Ann had found out and that it, and and we know not that's not true because she wasn't even married um, when when the affair st started, um, but it was just a lie. It was a lie of why he was with Ann Kurth, um, and that somebody was trying to blackmail him, and he was going to lose his practice. So he tells his wife this crazy elaborate story, but then she starts to get letters at her house and phone calls, basically saying that. John and Ann Kurth have been out in public, basically living as a couple. He went in and got his own apartment um, and was basically living between Ann Kurth's house and his apartment. And so she's just kind of had enough of this, right? She, Joan's had enough. Um, and this is when she decides to tell her powerful, rich, supportive father that her husband has left her for another woman. 
So as I mentioned, Ash Robinson wanted his daughter and grandson um, to have everything that they wanted, including their family back, if that's what she really wanted. And she told her dad, you know, I love him and I wish he would come back. And Ash, you know, I think just being a father felt like he should do something. And he decided he was going to draft a letter of reconciliation and give it to John to read. And he wanted John to sign it. So what was in this letter? He basically told his son-in-law that he has loaned him a lot of money and will start to collect if he doesn't call off the divorce and return to his marriage. Now, that is what we call a good old-fashioned bribe. (laughs) But John agrees. He agrees. He signs the papers. And he goes back to Joan. But he returns home. But the truth is, is he never stopped seeing Anne. Anne kept telling John he needed to make a decision, either her or me. I mean, this guy doesn't want to pay his father-in-law back that he deeply loathes and thinks that he already has enough money already. Why does he need my money? He feels like Ash Robinson has controlled his life and marriage since day one. He thinks his wife is a spoiled brat and he tortures her by giving her, you know, a measly allowance um, for the month, but fetches himself a $100,000 music room. I mean, he was not involved in his wife's equestrian events. He could care less about the status of her farm. And and honestly, I think he just felt like there was no way out of this marriage for him. Um, I, I think he felt like he was maybe under the thumb of Ash. And, um, you know, he, he didn't love Joan anymore. He told people that. He told people he wanted to he wanted a new life. Um, and he told Anne that he he's one out he's wanted out of this marriage a really long time, but because of her family and family status and, and the fact that he feels like he would lose his child um to her and her family. Um I don't know. These were the things that were running through his head that he shared with people. Um, But I but I think he 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 knew that um, I I think he just felt like he was going to live his life how he wanted, whether he was back in the house or not. Um, So things aren't going well. They're fighting. Um, they, you know, he still has a mistress. He's got Anne in, in one ear. He's got Joan in another, uh, and, and Joan thinks he's, you know, not seeing her anymore. I mean, it's a very, um, there's just so much around this And, and think about this. This is a very, um, you know, she, Anne Kurth doesn't live far from, from where, um, from River Oaks and, um, you know, it, it's it, Joan would drive by and Kurth would say she was being harassed by Joan. I mean, it was this battle over John Hill. A week before Joan died, two friends from Dallas came to stay with her. Their names are Diane Sedegast and Eunice Woolen. Um, over that week, John brought home pastries after work three nights in that one week. He hands them out to all three women accordingly. Um, on the third night, Joan asked John to trade her because cream puffs were her favorite, and he tells his wife no. After the women ate their pastries, John left for the night, telling Joan he had to make rounds at the hospital. We know now he was meeting with his mistress. 
Weeks before her death, Joan had found a list of patients with women's names marked by hearts, check marks, or labeled another way. Joan suddenly realized John may have been having affairs all throughout their marriage. All of the late nights of not coming home, she now knew. It wasn't because he needed to be there for his patients. On the evening of March 16th, Joan Hill is beyond furious that her husband has been leaving at night, assuming he is returning to his mistress. Chris, she tells her, excuse me, she tells her two friends, I'm always used to Chris being here. (laughs) She tells her two friends um, that she, that are visiting from Dallas, uh, that she wants them to join her in the music room for a game of bridge. So this is about day four that they are there. They have been, um, they're there staying for the week. Uh, So John has been bringing home the pastries, giving each woman a pastry. Like you have this one, you have this one. Um, They had gone to a dinner um, on one of those nights and John was ready to go after the food was served. Well, his wife wanted to stay and was like, why can't we stay and dance? And he's like, nope, it's time to go home. I've got to get to the hospital. And she just kind of had enough. So she goes, um, home and she asked her friends to join her um, in the music room for a game of bridge. Now, John is actually there and he's listening to music and she starts mouthing, basically talking about him right in front of him um, to her friends. So she's saying things like, I'm going to a lawyer on Monday. John is sleeping with another woman um, and that she suspects him of cheating with others. Um, Her friends will later say that it got so uncomfortable that they asked her to please stop since he was standing right there. So I want you guys to imagine this. They're in a music room. Um, She's talking loud enough so he hears her, even though there's music playing in the background. Um, One of her friends even at one point was like, can you just write down what you want to say about him and slide it over to me (laughs) rather than saying it out loud because he keeps looking over here and it's making us feel very uncomfortable. Um, So so there are notes like there are there were notes that were found um, of things that she wrote to her friends just sitting at that table. But then the mood changed. He starts playing a song that reminded um, both of them of the happier times. And he actually asked his wife to dance. So they do. The friends from Dallas would later recount that they looked happy um, and that there you could, you could tell there, you know, that there either was love or used to be love or is love. Um, but that was a moment for them. And Joan would even tell them the next morning that she felt happy and that he made her feel good. But that because... Um, because she wasn't sleeping that well, that John had given her a pill to help her sleep. So she woke up that morning feeling a little groggy and told her friends, you know, I'm good. So the next morning, her friends from Dallas are heading out. Her friends at that point think Joan does not look good. Um, John kept telling them, you know, I think she's coming down with a virus. So what what is happening here is that over these four or five days when these women are at the house, John is bringing pastries every night. Okay, he brings the pastries, they eat them after they eat them, he leaves and he says he has to go back to work or he has to go. He has a surgery planned, whatever. But he never stays in the evening 
Um, that whole week, he was there twice. So um, they, they're, they're going to leave, but they've noticed the last couple of days she has slept in a little more than usual. Just her friend said she was always up early and she was at the farm, you know, tending to the horses. But over these last few days, she just hasn't looked very good. She's been wanting to stay in bed. So her husband tells the friends that, you know, that he thinks she has a virus, but they want to, they want his reassurance that she's going to be okay before they leave to go home. Um, John reassures them, you know, I'm a doctor. She is going to be fine. The next day on March 18th, John Hill tells the maid that his wife should not be disturbed. She needs to sleep. She has a virus and is starting to get better, but is still feeling um, under the weather. He tells her she should take no phone calls and have no visitors. So after hours and hours go by, the maid starts to feel like something is not right. She has not heard from Joan Hill, who would typically call her on the home intercom system if she needed something. So it's now in the afternoon, and she has not heard from, from Joan Hill. So she decides to go and check on her. So when she goes in, she can immediately smell feces. Joan Robinson Hill was laying there in bed in her own vomit, urine, and fecal matter, barely able to speak. The maid tells her she's going to clean her up and change the sheets. Now, she is hustling to get this woman back in bed. The maid calls her husband. Now, her husband, um, now the maid calls her own husband, let me say that, who does handiwork for the Hills. And and he tells her, you know, you have to call John Hill and you have to call Joan's parents. It, it, sh this is not right. Like She tells him what she found and what state she found her in. So John Hill shows up. Rhea Robinson shows up, her mother. And... This is when things start to become um, strange for both the Robinsons and the actions of John Hill. So John um, is at the house with, um, with Joan's mother. And Joan's mother is actually dropped off by her father, Ash Robinson. I think if Ash Robinson would have known how sick his daughter really was, he would have gone inside. But, but at that point... For, for really the last 24 to 48 hours, they've kind of just been told Joan has a virus and she's been in the bed and that John didn't want anyone seeing her, and you know, just so she could get well. So they take one, her mother takes one look at her and says, John, you know, she's got to go to a hospital. I mean, she's, she's very sick. And he tells her, oh, I've already made arrangements. I've made arrangements um, I'm taking her to the hospital, and this is where she's going to get um, the best of the best care. Well, the mother soon realizes that he's not going to the big Houston hospital that has lots of, um, well, one that has an ICU, um, an emergency room. He drives 40, like 45 minutes, and this this is about a 15-mile I want to say it's about a 10 to 15 mile trip. It takes him 30 to 45 minutes to arrive at the small suburban hospital. And Mrs. Robinson would later say that he drove like a snail. She said it was like he didn't want to get there. Um, he was playing the music very loud in the car. And she thought that was weird. And she's like, can you turn it down? Like, what is going on with you? Um, 
I mean, you have a world-renowned Houston hospital less than 10 minutes away from your house, and you are a doctor, and you see the condition your wife is in, yet you choose to take her to a small suburban hospital, by the way, where he had told Joan's parents that a team of doctors would be waiting on her. A team of specialists are waiting to help her, and we're going to get her better. Um, when they pull up, the mother realizes that there is no emergency room. There is no ICU. Um, there is no team of doctors waiting there to help her daughter. Um, he goes inside and eventually comes out with a nurse. And I mean, back then, somebody said that a good place, it was a good place to like have a baby or if you have a broken arm, but that's it. Like not a place where you would go if you got really sick. Um but yeah, this is where he says she's going to get the best of the best care. Um, they run so many tests on Joan. They were trying to find out what is going on with her. Um, her kidneys started to fail. Urine was not producing. So Ash Robinson comes to see his daughter because Joan seems to be getting worse, even though the doctors, um, you know, thought at first she was getting better. But then a nurse takes her blood pressure and it's like 60 over 40. She's dying. And and doctors are called in. They're again, they're running tests. They're trying to figure things out. Um, she's having one problem after another. If one organ isn't failing, another organ is. And they're just they're just not sure if she has sepsis. Um, they're just not sure what's going on. But by the next morning, Joan was dead. Um, she her doctors diagnosed her with kidney failure, sepsis, and cardiac arrest. Uh, Joan was 38, 38 years old. Her father, Ash Robinson, was heartbroken. Um, he felt his son-in-law's outrageous moans and screams about his wife's death, death were staged at best. Now, a mandatory autopsy was required um, by hospitals. So the doctors, when they told John Hill that his wife was deceased... They explained to him that, and he, and I want to remind you, he is a doctor in Houston. And whether he knew this or not, he knew it well after um, the doctor told him, your wife has to have an autopsy. She has to have an autopsy before she is taken to the funeral home and embalmed. And he says, yes, I understand. But that's not what happens. He calls one of his friends and he asks him to, he's so upset. He calls, he asks him to call the local um, funeral home to make arrangements to have Joan brought to that funeral home. And, and they do within four hours, that funeral home. Now I, I was trying to find the details of how and how Joan was taken by this funeral home. Um, I don't know. We don't know if um, if they thought an autopsy was going to be taking place or an autopsy had already been had taken place when the funeral home came and got Joan from the hospital. I can only imagine that's exactly what they thought, because I guarantee you they also knew. If, I mean, this was a law that um, there could be a penalty if she did not get an autopsy. But this funeral home picks her body up. They take her. They drain her blood. They embalm her body. So by the next morning at 10 a.m. when the pathologist shows up um, to, to view Joan's body, he is shocked to see that she is already fully embalmed. So now 
They can't check blood. They can't check anything. I mean, her body is full of embalming fluid. Um, and they people thought, how in the world would this happen? How in the world would he allow this to happen? Her husband being a doctor. Everything is just starting to look suspicious. The day of Joan's funeral, Diane from Dallas found John sitting in his music room. He was with a handful of people laughing, enjoying conversation all in the morning of his wife's funeral. She was appalled. She demanded to know why he refused to get Joan help that she so desperately needed. Now, remember, this is Diane from Dallas, right? So she saw how sick Joan was getting. She wanted to know if you if you knew. And it, I mean, she, now she's dead. Like, how can you go from a virus and all of a sudden she's dead? And, and something in Diane just told her, you know, something's not right. So she goes and finds Ash Robinson. This is the kind of friend you want. You want a Diane from Dallas friend. She finds Ash Robinson, speaks to him about the week and, and the things that happened while she was staying in the Hill home and told him John brought pastries home three nights that week and that he was adamant about picking which one the women would eat. By the next day, Ash Robinson was in the Houston Police Department telling them he believed his daughter was murdered by her husband by poisoning her pastries. So after um, the funeral, by the way, Joan ended up having three different autopsies. Um, they exhumed the body. Um, they were trying to figure out, but all they could, one, one autopsy said it looked like toxic shock syndrome, like from a tampon that... Um, and yes, some of those, some of the things that were wrong um, are the result of toxic shock. But there were so many things wrong with her that they could. And by, and remember, they have no blood. Um, and and a, a, a proper autopsy could not um, be conducted because um, because of that embalming fluid. But um, basically, all the autopsies showed were sepsis possibly pancre pancreatitis, possibly um, heart failure, you know, cardiac arrest, which they know she went into um, when she was taking her last breath. But a, a full, uh, you know, and that's the problem. They're all coming up with different answers with this autopsy, right? This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. But we can't identify what made all these, these things happen and all these things occur. Uh, so John Hill files his wife's last will and testament just shortly after her death. Now, her father, Ash Robinson, quickly produces another will. And she, and he tells, um, you know, the um, the court who is looking at um, looking at the will. Right. I mean, this is this is a family of wealth. And he tells them that Joan had a separate will after she separated from John Hill. Um, leaving her father everything and asking that um, they raise their son. Now, John Hill says, baloney, baloney. Um, I'm hiring some experts to say that Ash Robinson wrote this or had someone else write it. Um, they asked, John Hill asked them to investigate um, and and really kind of find out who Ash Robinson hired to make this ridiculous, you know, will that he knows his wife did not write. Um, and, and Robert, now in 1978, 
the son claimed that it was a forgery, but the probate jury found in favor of Robinson. So um, they favored with Joan's family when it came to this will. Now, the other part, the other big part of this is now he has gone into the Houston Police Department and has shared the information about um, what he thinks happened to his daughter because Diane, you know, basically said this is what was happening the week of of Joan's death. Like, let me tell you what was going on in the house. Um, so the father is now convincing the courts that they need to take a look um, at her husband because he believes that he's poisoned her. He's poisoned her by poisoning um, the pastries. He marries Ann Kurth in June of 1969. So the woman he's having an affair with, he ends up marrying her within about four months of Joan's death. But then they divorce um, less than a year later. So by this time, he has already been indicted for the murder of Robinson Hill. So Jones, so now he is going to trial. Um, they, they went to a grand jury and the first grand jury to examine the case, um, they basically said we're not, they weren't going to indict Hill. But then Ash Robinson argued, um, you know, in order to, in order for them to exhume it, then basically, you know, he hired a very, very prominent law firm in Houston, um, to basically come up in front of a second grand jury. And when they did, um, John Hill hired lawyer Don Fullenweider, who asked his partner, and you guys will recognize this name, Richard Haynes, also nor, um, and he to represent the doctor. Now that, that lawyer, um, was at, at another famous case, um, out of Fort Worth. Um, so look up Richard Haynes. Big lawyer, represented lots of big, big name people. But basically, um, there were multiple, multiple grand juries. But the thing is, is they could not decide how this woman died. And, and this was the problem indicting John Hill for her murder. Um, now, they instead of taking a lie detector test, so basically they're saying, listen, if you want your name cleared, we need to give you a lie detector test. Um, and you know, to clear your name. Well, he's like, you know what? I'm going to go just even further. And they're going to use that truth serum, right? That truth serum to make you um, tell the truth. Well, none of that information and what he did to his wife came out in that session. Um, And because he divorces Ann Kurth, I think it was like two days after their divorce was final. She agrees to testify against him. Now, his attorneys advised him, you know, don't divorce her yet. If you stay married to her, she can't testify against you. But if you divorce her, she can. And boy, let me tell you, she gets on that stand when they finally decide to indict she gets up on that stand and she basically says that he admitted to me that he killed her. And she also says that he tried to kill me three times, once by running my car into a tree. The second, he tried to put a hypodermic syringe um, and inject me with something. Um, and so she's throwing out these allegations. 
And she even says that she saw three Petri dishes in the bathroom of John Hill's apartment um, during the time that Joan Robinson became ill. She said there was something weird and red in there. And when she asked him about it, he told her he was conducting an experiment. She could tell he got annoyed. She could tell he got frustrated. She also found some of those pastries in the apartment refrigerator. And she said he became annoyed then too. So she is spilling all of this, um, all of this um, to to the courts. Now, um, this, now the jury had voted 10 to 2 to indict Hill, right, for the murder by omission. And this is actually what he's charged with, you guys. The jury voted 10 to 2. Now, deciding that he had willfully, intentionally, and culpably contributed to his wife's death because he had not given her sufficient medical help, because he was a doctor and knew how sick she was, right? There's no way he could just assume she had a virus. He knew something was wrong with her, and he decided not to get the medical help that she needed. In the state of Texas, this was the first case um, the state of Texas had not previously indicted anyone on a, chur- on a charge of murder by omission, which is what this is called. So this is the first case um, where they are are charging someone and going to convict or looking to convict by murder, um, murder by omission. Um, so this testimony just blows up. Um, it, it, Hill's attorneys claim that she, that they had no uh, they th- that there was no reference to any of this information when she had spoken to authorities before, and that there should be a retrial, a second trial, um, and and basically a mistrial because of some of the testimony. And Haynes calls for a mistrial, and the judge agrees. So they dismiss this case. His his second trial was scheduled to begin in July of nineteen seventy one. Um, but because of, you know, the defense, they always like to delay it and delay it. So it wasn't going to be until November of 1972. So by this time, in September of 1972, John Hill is already married to someone else. So he's married to someone new. He's in Las Vegas at a conference. When his mother is staying at the home, he still lives in the home in, Riv- in River Oaks. Um, same house where he lived with Joan. Same house right down the street from his his ex-stepfather, or excuse me, ex-father-in-law. And a mask intruder forces their way into the Hill home. Now, John Hill's mother is there. She's there, and so is his son. And she's watching him while the couple is in Las Vegas. Well, they knew, um, or it is believed, that the intruders knew that John Hill would be showing up within 30 minutes of their arrival. So... They hear the car door. John and Connie Hill um, walk up to the door. They open it. um, And what he sees is his mother and his son bound with tape. And um, and their their hands are tied behind their back. Um, They are immediately attacked when they come in the front door. But Connie gets away. She gets away and she starts screaming running down the street and she gets into a neighbor's home and then they hear gunshots. Uh, John Hill is shot three times and beaten to death. He had um, um, tape, adhesive tape over his eyes, his nose and his mouth. Um, And he was beaten to death and shot three times. This was just right at the front door. His son 
was able now now the the perpetrators fled. His son was able to get uh, to his father. Um, police are called when they arrive. They see that poor child sitting by his father who had um, just been killed. Uh, but everyone always believed that Ash Robinson ordered the hit, that Joan's father ordered the hit on Hill. Um, it, it, and, and basically was trying to get rid of him to get his grandson. That's what they say the motive was behind killing. Um, and plus he wasn't, he wasn't standing trial for her murder. He was standing trial by not getting the proper, her proper medical care. And I, and if he, you know, if Ash Robinson is responsible for this hit, I'm sure it wasn't just to get his grandson. I'm sure, you know, being the apple of his eye, his daughter, he missed her. And, um, you know, he's rich. And sometimes people with money decide that um, they can take matters into their own hands. Now, um, because the because the Hill family um, believed that Ash Robinson had ordered this hit, they they basically put a $7.6 million lawsuit against him for um, wrongful death. Now, he denied having anything to do with it. He said he would never hire someone and have, um, you know, have his son, have his grandson tied up. Um, you know, this was not, he said he was not responsible. Uh, the three people, there was actually the three perpetrators um, that were there were actually eventually caught. Um, two women and one man named Bobby Vandiver now, here's what's interesting. Both women were um, said to be call girls or ladies of the night or however you want to uh, want to phrase that. Um, and they end up tying one of the women to a man. Okay, so they find a gun. Let me let me back up here. They find a gun and and a briefcase that looked like it was abandoned. So a boy comes and he finds a briefcase. He tells the police what he found. When they find the briefcase, they also find a gun pretty close by. They trace this gun back to a doctor. A doctor tells them that a woman of the night stole his gun um, and he was so upset, he didn't know who she was. Um, and then he said that the name was Dusty, but he knew that wasn't, a real name. So when they find out her real name, which is Marsha McKittrick, uh, they believe that she is connected to Bobby Van Diver and they do make that connection and that um, there is, but they could never make a connection to Ash Robinson. So they tried desperately to, um, to, to pin it on Ash Robinson saying that he hired um, these, these people to, to get rid of his son-in-law um, now Bobby Vandiver will say that he did it for money and that he was hired by the other woman, Lilla Paulus, who was a former sex worker from Houston, um, and was an accessory to the Hill murder. Uh, so he basically said it was a hired kill and that he was, um, doing it for $5,000 and that, um, that the contract was on a doctor who had killed his wife. So there were things that he knew um, and that 
and basically and what he was told. So during that police interrogation, Van Diver told detectives um, that Lilla Paulus had first mentioned the contract in the summer of 1972, but he had never really intended to go through it. And that's when he agreed. And they made the arrangements because he told them they were in Las Vegas. Again, he knew a lot of information um, about John Hill and his life. And the, the, you know, police were like, well, how does he know all of this stuff unless it's coming from someone close to the family? But they could never actually tie Ash Robinson to these people. Um, so he was actually never tried um, or convicted or anything for um, for the murder of John Hill. Uh, but it is believed that he possibly hired um, possibly hired and knew Lilla Paulus. And this is how they were able to get so much information about John Hill. Um, so John Hill is now deceased. And then um, the, when they were going to try Bobby Van Diver, Bobby Van Diver is, <laughs> he basically flees. He's supposed to be um, going to court to be tried for um, John Hill's murder. And he just doesn't show up. He goes to Longview, Texas. Now, remember, this is back, you know, this is 1968, 69, 70, and 70, 71, time. And there's just not a lot of people living in this area. So basically, there's a new guy in town. And when he, well, there's a police officer and a sheriff, and he's like, you know, who is this guy? And then he finds out who he really is. Um, that's when Bobby Vandiver pulls out a gun and the cop shoots him. So he never actually stands trial for um, John Hill's murder. Um, but this is just, this whole case is, I mean, it's unbelievable. I'm telling you this 21-hour audiobook, if you um, have that time and like to listen, even if you fall asleep or, um, you know, while you're working during the day, it is a pretty fascinating uh, story of of love, of um, murder, of jealousy, of, you know, um, philanthropy. I mean, she was so involved in, in nonprofit stuff and, and was always trying to, to help. And, you know, she, she's a socialite living this, you know, amazing life. And, and then, you know, it, it's, it's ironic because John Hill's parents didn't want him marrying Joan you know, she told her son, you don't have anything in common with her. And, and she even told him, if you marry her, I'm not coming to the wedding. I mean, something just maybe told her something was off or wasn't right. She, she told him, you don't come from the same world. You know, you're, you're not treated the same way. And, you know, he was adamant, you know, that he loved her and, and wanted, you know, and wanted to be with her. And you have to think maybe it was just her image that he wanted, right? Or maybe it was the riches that he wanted and just thought he thought it was love. Um, but this was an, a crazy, unbelievably um, strange case that made national attention. Um, like I mentioned, multiple books, multiple um, movies made about this case back in the, the 1970s um, and the 1980s. So if you want to, if you want to check those out, um, you can, but that is the story of Joan Robinson Hill. 
All right, friends. Well, the wine is gone. The food is gone. Our Dallas Cowboys are uh, are are now are resting. So, uh, what a what a great season it was. Um, glad to be back. I, I feel like we we had a very 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 busy start to January, and then um, you know life is busy, right? And so we've had so many things um, going on um, on the podcast side. So it's good to be back on the microphone. It's good to be back. Um, drinking wine and, and and talking dishes. And don't forget, we're going to be having our Zoom coming up this Thursday. We're going to be talking about Natalie Wood. So if you want to get on our list, so you get that Zoom link, um, 8 Central Standard Time this Thursday. We do it the very last Thursday of each month. All you need to do is text Wine and Crime to 85100, Wine and Crime to 85100. So you can get on our list and make sure you get that Zoom link. Until next time, friends, stay safe, have fun, and cheers to next time.